Hi, this is Jim Lesser from BBDO San Francisco, and welcome to another episode of the Fog City Chronicles. Today's interview is part of a series called The Women Who Run BBDO. Female leadership is such an important topic in our industry right now, and at BBDO, I've been very lucky to work with uh, some of the most dynamic leaders in our industry who happen to be women who are running offices and groups of offices. And I thought that if we could uh, pull their collective knowledge together, it might help to inspire the uh, female leaders of tomorrow. Today's interview is with Elle McCarthy, who until recently was Elle Graham Dixon. Um, but Elle is the global head of planning for BBDO on Ford, a role she's been doing for about a year since leading that pitch. And um, Elle came to the agency from BBH, and last year at the 3% conference, she gave a very powerful keynote speech on the topic of language. So here is my conversation with Elle McCarthy. So welcome, Elle. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, okay, so just to um, start, I wonder if we we could talk a little bit about how you got into advertising. Um, just in doing my my usual digging and research, um, I noticed you have a very varied academic background, and so I wonder if you could just talk about, you know, how you ended up in advertising. Was it something that um, you discovered? in school or was it something that you sort of got, uh, you know, guided into by someone and, um, and take us through that journey a little bit? Um, so I guess it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way because I remember distinctly being laughed out of the room when I was about five years old at my parents' dinner party when they asked me, what are you going to be when you grow up, expecting the normal kind of answers that a child would give? And I very deadpan said, I think either a barrister or a painter. Um, <laughs> and I had no idea why people were laughing um, at the time with this very straight deadpan delivery because I firmly believed that I was an adult when I was a child. Um, but, and actually, I think that's what planning is. You know, planning is kind of a combination of, of being a barrister and really unpicking the evidence and the facts and then making a really compelling argument. Um, and being a painter, you know, being able to paint creative strategy and, and pave the way uh, for great creativity to shine. Um, the, the way I actually ended up there, obviously, was much messier um, and gnarlier than that because it was sort of... Um, I, I had decided to be a painter and I had gone to art school and I arrived there and realized that I totally hated it and that I couldn't um, practice art in a purely academic sense because I found it to be a really, really elitist world. And I felt as though the medium of art had stopped being able to really make an impact um, since it had become such a narrow market product. And so, you know, it only really reaches people who have galleries in their repertoire, can afford to go into galleries, don't feel awkward going into galleries. And I realized I was around a lot of elitism and I felt really lost and I dropped out of art school. And it was the first time I dropped out of anything and I felt, um, I felt like I'd failed, you know, that we didn't have the concept of failing forward um, in the early 2000s or certainly I hadn't ever read about it. And so I firmly felt um, depressed in that moment. Uh, and it was actually a few years later that I found advertising, but the journey that took me there was um, I applied for a course to read art history. So it's, you can laugh at me for that because art history is arguably even more elite than art. Um, <laughs> but this course wasn't that way. It was, um, it was a course that combined all of the different humanities disciplines and you could basically pick and choose from the theory across the humanities and if you could have renamed the course you could have called it the sort of the study of um, media and cultures through time and my my favorite element of it was anthropology again I feel like I have to be self-knowing here and say I, I went and studied that at Oxford which is a really elitist institution but 
what I was interested in was the big revolutions that had made media go more mainstream and be more accessible. So I was really interested in the print revolution and the media revolution um, and you know people's ability to all see the same stuff. And so my biggest realization and what I ended up specializing in was that advertising, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, is the most relevant medium on earth because we see it, whether we want to or not, more often than we see anything else on earth. Um, I also felt I became a lot more activist while I was a student. And so what I was interested in was the fact that it was also like not the best medium in terms of the body images that it was putting out about women and in terms of like how whitewashed it was um, and how stereotyped it was when it came to gender identity. And so I felt like rather than reject it, it would be a, maybe a good thing to lean into it and to try and change something that is very relevant to everybody, but isn't necessarily using that for good. Um, and so I started working in advertising my holidays and just playing around with that. And that's how I got into it. Great. That's, um, that's quite a long and winding road for sure. Um, the the uh, the art school dropout story is a great a great place to dig in maybe a little bit because I'm just curious someone who is as you said um, not used to failure and you're probably a teenager at that point how did you face into that that um, you know headwind of like f dropping out of school and saying I'm going to go do something else and deal with the pressures of like, no, you've got to keep going, you've got to succeed at whatever you start. And how did you make, you know, make that decision to go find something else? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. It's, it's funny, it's tempting to kind of like re, rewrite it and say that at the time I felt like there was more good in it than there was. The reality is at the time I was um, in a really toxic relationship with someone living in a filthy bedsit in London where you had to buy old-fashioned 50 pence pieces off of the landlady using real 50 pence pieces to make the shower work. The shower was like an old-fashioned slot machine that you might find in, in like a circus. Um, and when you did make it work, you had to wait for all of the rats to run out of it before you stepped in. So, you know, that's to paint a picture, I was living in that environment and I felt like I'd failed at my one true love and I didn't know what I was going to do next. I think um, what that gave me is um, something that then repeated as a motif in my life and in, and in my career. In moments like that where you really feel like you've kind of lost everything, the worst thing that can happen has happened. You know, I think we've all been there and we felt like the worst thing that can happen has happened. And when you look back on that and remember that, in new moments of crisis, you kind of learn that at the end of the day, you do continue. Even if you don't know how you're gonna continue at the time, you do. And there will always be a moment where you're able to look back on that time of your life um, in retrospect, having arrived in a different place. And you'll only know that you've arrived there when you have. So it, you know that's a mantra that I always have um, kept with me, which is, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen and is it going to be so bad? That's great. That's, um, there's actually, a, um, I don't know if you've heard of an exercise called fear setting, but it's kind of a formal practice around doing what you just talked about, that when you're facing a hard choice to sort of write down a list of what are the, the best things that could happen, what are the worst things that can happen, and then go into detail on, like you said, what's the worst that can happen and make your decision based on, on yeah. that. And then you have to ask, and then what, and then what, and then what, so that you get there, and then you have to go, is that so bad? Right, right. Um, well, uh, so g getting into sort of that beginning of your career as a strategist, you know, I think one of the, um, the most dynamic aspects of our industry has been the strategic planning part of what we do in advertising. And I'm curious how you viewed at the beginning of your career, how you viewed the role of a strategist? What does a good strategist do? What, you know, what's your role in the creative process? And has that changed up to now? You know, has, that, has that evolved over time or has it changed a little bit or a lot? Um, it's funny. Uh, 
even though I started pursuing advertising when I was quite young, I didn't know what a strategist was until I um, was told that I was one by a really, really generous um, person. You know, he eventually was a boss, but at the time he was just a person um, because I had started, um, I'd wanted to apply to some small agencies just to see what that felt like uh, when, I, when I wanted to work in advertising. And I went for this interview and uh, this, this guy... I'd literally looked at a search list of advertising agencies from an alphabetically listed search list and I'd applied from A to C on that first day and I got a call back from Alphabet Advertising who were this tiny little niche financial agency and they said, everyone's sick, everyone's got a flu um, because we're a 20 person agency and we're running a pitch and like, please come in. And so I went into interview and he stopped me halfway through and he said, so, this interview is going really badly <laughs> um, because you're really underprepared and you haven't thought about, he asked me a question about what my favorite ads were of, of all time. And I had started talking about my, the favorite advertising mechanics that, I, that I'd always found really fascinating and, and Howard Gossage. And he said, but you, you aren't able to sort of list your cult favorite ads. And I would give you some advice when you go into agencies they're probably going to want to hear you list some ads and probably some that they've made because that's how agencies work. And I was like, noted, thank you. Um, but he said, look, this is going badly, but we do need extra hands on deck and we need brain power. We just we need somebody to, to write some briefs. And so um, even though it, it kind of was quite arrogant of you to come in this underprepared, which was an important career lesson, uh, can you can you start? tomorrow and we'll pay you a little day rate and and you're going to be a strategist and I said great what's a strategist and he said well you know it, it's going to be hard for you to work that out because we actually don't have any full-time strategists in our 20-person agency uh, we just kind of get them into freelance every now and then and, and that's what you're going to do right now um, his his name is Sean Harris and he's still a good friend and a mentor uh, and so a strategist to me at the beginning of my career meant somebody who makes it up as they go and I would say that that is the number one defining characteristic of what I look for in great strategists now, because I think that that's never how strategy has formally defined itself. And I'm of the opposite school from the marketing scientists who try to create this really fixed view of how marketing works. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Binet and Field and I love marketing science, but when we use marketing science to define this is how planning works, this is how strategy works, this is how advertising works, we reduce our ability to make it up as we go along and ask new questions. We also um, deny marketing science its ability to be science because science isn't trying to find the answer. Science doesn't believe there is an answer. Science is as good as its evolving hypotheses and its ability to continue making itself up as it goes along. Um, and I think that, you know, I was lucky enough to start out in digital and direct and slowly made my way into brands. So I've, I've always been more of a bottom-up brand planner. I, I think a planner is a planner is a planner. The more that we reduce disciplines, I think the stronger we are. Um, so I never had that formal definition, and I think my first definition remains my ultimate one, which is somebody who's willing to make it up as they go along, you know, by interrogating it, by asking the right questions. Um, that's great. So um, I want to just probe on one thing that you said, which is that you were under-prepared uh, for this interview. And I'm just curious, <laughs> that being such a formative experience, you know, at the beginning of your career, has that affected the way you now interview other people? Um, in, I don't know, in any way, you know, do, you, do you look at interviewees differently because of that experience? Um, ooh. I don't know because I think that the climate has shifted so much from when I was um, coming up as a planner to how I interview planners today. Because at the time, we were still a really um, you know, over-applied to industry and a really over-applied to discipline within the industry because there was a sort of, 
I, I don't, I never really understand why it happened, but there's this idea that when you're coming in as a grad, the ultimate thing you can be as a planner, because planning is like the great job that, I don't really know why it is that that discipline um, has been oversubscribed to versus account management. But I feel like that's something that happened in, in a moment of time. And I think where we're at now is that our ability to attract talent to our industry and particularly diverse talent, so people from people who weren't necessarily born into the wealth that allows um, you to take a lower salary at the start of your career, or the wealth that would allow you to fly to New York to interview, and, um, and people who maybe want to do something else, work for themselves, be entrepreneurs. We, we need to attract them into our business. And so the way that I interview, and I think that the turning point was probably also the moment that I became senior enough to really be hiring and to be interviewing. So the way that I interview is to ask people what they're looking for from a workplace. You know, I, I kind of flip the, the arrogance. I'm not looking for them to be able to cite loads of the work in, in our agency and to prove to me that they want to work here more than that they want to work to another in, in another agency. I just want to really understand from somebody how I could be a great boss to them, whether this environment is going to be the right fit. And I have to say that's because I spend a lot of time casting the people who we're interviewing so that by the time I'm interviewing them, I'm kind of maybe 80, 90% over the line with the fact that this feels like the right bench. So then it's about trying to pull them in and trying to attract that talent. Um, rather than the older interview is a, is a big hurdle to jump through mentality. That's interesting. So I'm curious when you say you've, you know, you're already 80 or 90% of the way there that you're trying to attract them, what have you done in order to get to that point? So is there, are there certain techniques that you use to, to line up that pipeline of talent that you talked about, that you know, people who you're looking for who aren't necessarily born into the, the structures that allow them to be in front of you because maybe they know someone in your department or something like that? Well, I, I think it's, um, it's really important to strike the right balance between pulling, pulling people in through your network. So we've got a really great example between you and I, Jim, because you've recently, you had met somebody through a scheme who then Crystal knew of, through you and then because I had already said that I maybe wanted to work with that scheme, we were able to make the phone call um, directly and you know, you said you've spoken to a lot of people in that moment and that she had really shone. So you know, that's, that's a hire that's made through our network, but it's a hire that's made through our network talent spotting, not a hire that's made through our network from a nepotistic perspective. And I think that's, that's the balance, you know, having a strong, bench at any time so that if I get a phone call saying, hey, I'm, I'm recruiting um, at this level, do you know of anyone? Having made sure that you've had the right conversations in that moment is, is really, really important. So you've got a really strong planning bench. Um, but also thinking about the shape of your team holistically so that when, you're, when a role opens up, you're able to look at the team and say, I feel like it's really important that we balance things out from a gender perspective right now, um, for example. And so I think that's, that's the other thing. It's being really intentional about the construction and the casting of, of teams who sit together to create a diversity of thought from a diversity of background and a diversity of experience. Um, and then making sure that we that we have a strong bench. And of course, there are the networks that we should always work with, like MAPE, like three percent, you know, listing our th listing our um, roles, our open positions on three percent jobs is another thing that um, my peers in the industry have found really helpful. Um, because then you know somebody is being backed as a result of the scheme that they're coming through. Again, not just from a nepotistic perspective. Right, so, so it's, it's the way I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying, it's kind of an intentionality around building new structures that support new pipelines for the kinds of people that you're looking for. 
Yes, exactly. Um, but also thinking about how a whole team is going to gel to get to somewhere new. Um, and so making sure that if, we, if it feels like we need fresh influence or fresh energy, um, that we're casting for that, not just casting for the role. Um, and making sure that we, you know, I think one of my favorite quotes that comes out of, um, that came out of the 3%, and I think maybe it's a Cindy Gallup quote originally, is you know, hire, hire people for what they will do, not for what they've done. Because if you continue hiring people for what they've done, then you hire people who've been in the privileged position to have been able to do those things um, in a world that privileges men and that often privileges white people. And so making sure that we're really clear about what we want somebody to do next and that we can interview them based on their capabilities that, that have been backed and vetted by these, by these networks that help to spot that talent is another important part of it. Um, so just shifting a little bit, but, but sort of building on this topic, I guess, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the transition you know, that we all have to make when we, when we start our careers, you're, you're in the mode of being a, a doer, a craftsperson, and then little by little, you might begin to supervise people or have a role as a leader, building a team. And I wonder if you have any lessons learned, advice for, um, for anyone who's, you know, in that period of making the transition to building a team, being a leader, things that you, you learned along the way that might be helpful. Yeah. Um, I think whenever I, I think w when I speak to strategists now about making the transition between even a senior planner and a, and a planning director, um, I always have this conversation with them very intentionally, which is um, that a definition of leadership that I love, probably my favorite definition of leadership, uh, is that your role is from now on to create other leaders. And you should be having your own um, KPIs, your own measure of success that you're judging yourself against and how many other leaders you're able to create. And that might mean the people underneath you and the people that you manage, it also might mean your, your peers. And I think I've been lucky enough to participate in some really great leadership training and I've engaged actively in, in the reading on the subject. Um, so recently this year, the Marketing Academy, uh, which is a great leadership training program that came to the US from the UK, um, I participated in that and so I, I learned a lot and that's one of the sound bites that I like from there. Uh, but you know, I had already been going on this journey from leadership and uh, that happened for me at a relatively young age because I found myself in an agency where they made approximately 50% of the agency re redundant shortly after I had joined. And so I was one of the only people in planning. And so I, I had to learn to be a leader on my feet quite quickly. Um, and, and I think what I had noticed around me previously was that a lot of the leaders in, in strategy particularly who haven't had training, they wanted to continue going off and doing what they did best in a silo and asking other people to follow their own strategic style. And so you would be rewarded for mimicking the strategy leader above you's style um, rather than rewarded for bringing something new or doing something for yourself. And so I remember promising myself in the future I will reward different people's styles and I, I want to be somebody who's able to spot different um, difference um, underneath me and somebody who's not wedded to continuing to be the doer or the person who shines. Now, I think the, the other really important thing is to spot the moments where there is an opportunity for somebody else to lead the meeting and to fight for that person to lead the meeting because often advertising agencies can be really hierarchical places. Um, and so trying to break apart that hierarchy and say, no, this person, it doesn't matter what their title is, they're the person with the knowledge and they're ready for it. I think it's also really important to, if you know that you want to do that for somebody, to make sure that they're comfortable with it and to make sure that you give them the right coaching that they're, that they're really going to shine in that moment. Um, and so I, th I think 
it's definitely my leadership style to give people stretch roles. I like to hire people into stretch roles and to give people those stretch moments in meetings. Um, I learned the hard way that, that, that you have to coach people and that you can end up dropping them in the deep end um, if, you, if you don't. That's something that I've course corrected on. It only happened once. It wasn't a big deal, but it stays with me. And, um, and yeah, so I, <laughs> I think that's probably my biggest lesson. Um, it's interesting that you had this experience early on in your career where, as you said, half the department was made redundant and you were sort of forced to be a leader pretty quickly. I'm curious, as you went on through your career and worked at other agencies, did you find yourself stealing leadership techniques or skills from you know, new bosses that you had, new leaders that you were working with in other agencies, even though you had already had this experience of having to sort of rise very quickly in the situation you'd been in um, in the first agency? Um, I'm just going to repeat your question to make sure I've heard it correctly. But um, after having been put in a leadership position, did I get new bosses with new skills that I was able to learn from after, after that? Exactly. Um, it, uh, you know, a lot of times I think we can all, you know, um, benefit from learning what we've stolen from our great bosses and leaders that we've worked with. Absolutely. Um, well, my, my favorite um, mentor, I will call him a mentor now, but um, he, he was my boss on the account, has to be Nigel Bogle. Um, who I was really, really lucky to work with Nigel Bogle because he's one of the founding partners of BBH and he still had a really active role in the agency but he didn't really have an active role on um, any accounts in the moment that I first joined BBH. Uh, but we had our, our CSO left, he had another opportunity, um, John, Jonathan Bottomley, and, and he left and it meant that Nigel Bogle stepped in and he took this leadership role on um, Virgin Media, the account that I was leading. And he, I mean, I could give an hour on everything that I learned from Nigel. He really is um, so, so wise. And all of the wonderful moments that I had with him, like when he called me and said, look, I just really need you to come into my office. And I was like, okay, I'm coming. And I got there and he said, you have to watch this David Bowie video on the power of foresight because it's exactly what you're looking for in your creative brief. And he was totally right. And we just sat and watched the David Bowie video. Um, but what he really, his piece of advice that stuck with me the most and that I always give to other people is cut off your weaknesses. Um, play to your strengths and cut off your weaknesses, he said to me. And I think I've reflected on that piece of advice a lot since he gave it because um, at the time I was trying too hard um, in every single area of, of what I wanted to achieve. And actually by saying, you know what, I'm really good at this part of this but somebody else is going to be better at this other part that I'm really struggling with. That was another moment um, in learning as a leader that it's really important to cast people who have complementary skills around you. And it's really important to be able to say, I would like some help here. And to say that sideways, downwards and up. Um, so in the moment, it was really helpful. But having reflected on it, I think what's interesting for me is that our education system and I actually think the American education system does this even more than the UK one. Our education system teaches us to try and be kind of Renaissance women and to be really, really good at every single thing. And you get points on the board by being excellent at this and excellent at that. And so during your education, you've pro you probably had moments where you would look at the, you would spend the most time thinking about the things that you were the worst at and going, how can I improve those things? And his follow-up insight, um, he said to me, look, because people can only be great at a few things. So it's up to you, you know, be great at a few things or be good at everything. But nobody's gonna reward you for being good at everything. If you're great at something, that's how you're gonna get spotted. And it's also how you're gonna progress because you're most likely to be great at the stuff that you care the most about. Um, and so him saying that to me also in that moment, because he was talking about something on the Virgin Media account, um, 
But, you know, I, th- I thought to myself, what do I really care about? And what I really cared about was equality. And, and I think that him saying that to me, even though it was maybe two years before it happened, almost gave me permission emotionally to let myself focus more on equality, which is something that I then, I then went and did my project on over, over the next sort of two, three years. So that's sort of the thing that stayed with me the most from Nigel. That's a perfect segue um, into the subject of equality and diversity. And you've done so much work in this area throughout your career. Um, so I'm, I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about maybe some of the things that you learned that were real eye-openers along the way or some things that you've sort of discovered and put in place that maybe now others who are listening can build on in, in their own place. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think, um, I think what I like, what I really liked in your question is uh, the, the idea of you know, what, what was surprising because diversity and equality has been so folded into the narrative of agencies that I think it has risked becoming wallpaper and the fact that agencies have acknowledged a problem has been treated almost as though we've also achieved some solutions. And the thing that surprised me the most when I started to try and engage in this and and to create real change within my agency, because I had previously been running personal projects outside of agencies, but when I realized, you know, maybe I should do this at work and bring this to work, um, was the amount of things that had been happening that weren't contributing to change. So, for example, I was really surprised that after we had implemented unconscious bias training, conversations felt a lot more muted and people behaved a lot more shut down. So that was one of my really surprising insights because um, for some of the men in the room who talked in, in a small room about maybe having unconscious gender bias, um, they felt really afraid to speak to women. You know, how, how could they engage with women if they were so biased against them? One of my colleagues, who was also a friend, asked me one day. Um, and, and so I think what, what we were at risk of doing was diagnosing problems and then acting as though that was job done and that we'd fixed it and that the understanding of the problem was the same as having found a solution. Um, And so some of the work that I started doing was to just look at all of the different areas of our agency against the objective of um, making a more representative body of work. Because when you looked at the body of work in advertising, it held gender biases, it was whitewashed. Um, and you know, auditing our work and looking at how diversely it is cast and whether the stories that we're telling were surprising or previously untold stories. Um, but then looking at every single discipline in the agency and asking them what are the problems that are getting in your way for bringing in, um, for hiring more diversely, for retaining and growing that talent and for the area that their discipline was contributing to when it came to our body of work. So for the creative department, um, storytelling, and for the production department, casting. And through that process of of consulting with them and applying the strategic process to, um, to what we did, I was able to unpick smaller micro insights and turn them into projects and so we would experiment and we did these little projects and the other really important thing that that was enabled me to do was enabled me to speak to young people in the agency and say hey do you care about this the agency cares about this do you want to run some projects do you want to own some stuff because young people were saying to me how, how have you started doing this work and I said well you know by starting by doing it um, and so some of the projects that we Some of the projects that we ran um, included, we worked with HR and we created a tool called We Are Listening, which was an anonymous feedback forum. I think, you know, there is now a lot of holding companies have anonymous lines that you can call. 
Um, but we had a direct line straight into this one woman in HR who was very visible and was very vocal on the floor with the teams saying, you can trust me, I will protect your anonymity, you can tell me what's going on. Um, and we created a little widget in HR that allowed people to say anything that had made them feel uncomfortable. And that was really, really useful for us because it meant that people in a leadership position couldn't deny what was coming in through these channels. And so it was being brought to them once a month. We would bring as part of the HR update, this is what's coming through we are listening at the moment. And these, this is the normative stuff that we need to change. So we're having a little bit of casual sexism over here. Women are being interrupted in meetings over here. Um, and then also, here's like an actual big HR red flag and can we match up? Is there any other data that is pointing us towards um, this, this culprit being a problem? And so, you know, something that started out really small and mostly was dealing with, um, you know, unconscious bias or actually, you know, normative, casual discrimination, um, which was also able to, you know, help, help us to identify a problem and to join up the data. Uh, because when you look at the thing that the Me Too movement was able to successfully help people to start doing, was to see spot patterns and spot trends. And that's what previously hadn't happened because conversations were had you know, in the dark, in private. Um, so that was just one example um, that we were able to do. I think the other big one for us was diversity and casting and a lot of the conversations that, I were, that were had sort of at the last minute um, when, when people were finally looking at casting roles uh, were around some agencies, some casting agencies saying, well, do you want the most diverse talent or, or do you want the best talent? And what they meant was the best talent on their books because previously they hadn't been holding themselves accountable to having a diverse um, roster. And so we started just working very purely with a diverse casting agency who also were able to workshop storytelling with us and our creatives and we made that available to our to our producers we made that available to our creatives so the narrative couldn't be well the production agency told us that they couldn't you know um, so holding people accountable to creating change by enabling it for them like making it easy and serving it up on a platter and going this is yours for the taking it's, it's up to you um, and within strategy, we could do stuff too. So we were able to, um, we made another box on our creative briefs that did the diversity. It just very simply gave the diversity makeup of the audience um, that, that the client was targeting at the bottom of the brief, just as a nice little reminder that, for example, even though in the UK, it's around 14% of, of the UK population, according to census data, is black or of mixed ethnicity. Um, but often these briefs were targeting people in city centres where that statistic changes to being about 40% um, and putting you know, disability statistics and, and non-gender binary statistics on there too. Just as a little reminder when we start thinking about storytelling that even if you are a straight white man writing your script that you could draw from other people's experiences and making it really easy to to find people to um, jam with on that so that it's not accusatory. Again, you know, just make, making it easy and making it part of our creative repertoire. It was projects like that that had the most traction. Those are really helpful, um, concrete examples, so thank you. Um, I'm curious if you also pulled clients in, in any specific way into that conversation? Yeah, um, yeah, we did. Um, it was. What's interesting is I'm having these conversations at the moment. Well, actually, for the last two years, we've been having the conversation um, with Kat Gordon, who also wrote an article for the Marketing Society about you know, how clients can help hold agencies more accountable. Because there was a narrative about you know, two, well, I was doing this sort of between four and two years ago, um, the projects that I'm just referring to, there was a narrative in agency side that you know agencies are trying to lead this change and they're being on the front forefront of change. But the reality is clients um, are feeling the pressure to change 
more more even than agencies, arguably, because they're being held accountable by boards to certain diversity quotas. And so what I found really fascinating was um, going in, going up, reaching out to our body of clients and saying, hey, um, do you have interesting um, diversity uh, quotas that we can learn from? And so there was a really amazing example with Barclays because Barclays had the most incredible diversity program um, and had and that was spanning gender um, and all of its intersections. Um, and they were they were really, really good on disability as well, and particularly having a lot a big body of disabled people who were working for them um, as a bank because that was that was something that they cared about. And so we were able to look at their policies and go, great. So we're going to take your policy and we can make our own agency charter that is our agency commitment to replicate your policy. Now with a company like Barclays, because they were already so good, that was really easy. Um, and so we started picking off projects that we could do with them. Um, one, for example, how do you cast um, disabled people in advertising without disability being the idea? This was this big question that kept coming back to us from some of our other clients who so we were like, brilliant, let's make a case study with Barclays. So we started working with Barclays on that. Um, and what's lovely about that was that it was able, to, that helped us to set a precedent for creating client charters. So then we could go into another client, the one who, for example, if you were to speak about the difference between census data and actually the proportion of their target audience who were people of color and say, it is our agency mission to create a more fair and representative body of work. Um, this is what that looks like for your audience. Are you willing to sign up to this charter um, to make a joint commitment with us to represent the audience in the work over the, over the course of the body of work? You know, if you were to make a tick box on every single ad, then you start doing marketing by numbers again. But when you talk about the body of work for a client that makes a lot of work, um, then it started to make sense. So yeah, we, we pulled the clients in, but what was interesting was that we used one with a really great precedent to uh, help us to hold others accountable. Um, and we were able to see that this conversation can be much more advanced in the client world than it sometimes is in the agency world. Um, that's also really helpful. And um, I think especially when we get into specifics like that, it's, it's most helpful for everyone because you can see to your point, diagnosing the problem isn't the answer. It's then moving beyond it and finding real solutions. So um, thank you for all those examples. Um, just switching gears to kind of general leadership stuff for a second, and then I want to see if anyone else has questions here. Um, are, there, are there things um, that you consciously do as a leader to, to, to create a culture that people want to come and work at. So, you know, are there, are there things that you really um, think about doing on a day-to-day -day basis or, or just a programmatic basis over time that um, you think help create the environment where people want to work? Yeah, um, I think what's interesting about my team at the moment um, is that because I'm running a global team and so we have people who are in New York, we have people here in Detroit, those people are constantly collaborating with people in 14 different markets and five different regions, so we are dispersed around the world. Um, some of the things that I think make a great working environment are you know, the, the openness of leaders, people walking the floor and, and being very present. So I certainly try to replicate physical presence through digital presence. Um, and that means you know, just checking in with people regularly um, on how the work's going, but also on how it's going and, and on how they're feeling. Because I think, I think the thing that makes people the most motivated is coming to work feeling as though they can be successful that day. And we probably all know that working in advertising and in client servicing, where not everything is within our control, that is impossible if we frame success as people agreeing with me, 
my idea being bought, um, you know, a, a conventional view of winning. And so one of the things I like to say to my team, and I say this on, in one-on-ones or, you know, I, I text people as well, is um, where are we going to take our success from today? What does success look like today? So that we're able to roll with the day's punches and, and the pivots and go, right, well, that thing died today. But where, where we've achieved um, something really great is that the clients feel really listened to and they feel like we're going to go on the next bit of the journey. And so to, today's strategy has been in the service of clients in, in a really good way. Um, so so that's, that's how I do it. And I think the other thing that's really important, and I was alluding to this earlier on when I was talking about giving people the stretch and giving people the headroom and spotting the opportunities for them to shine, um, is to always be really clear with my team that um, we're all going to take risks together, but I will own the failures and they will own their successes. And for them to know that I'll champion their successes as well. I think that's the other, that's the other way that I see people feeling motivated. Wonderful examples, thank you. Um, okay, any questions from our live audience here in San Francisco? I'll, I'll play the role of, uh, of repeater and translator um, to just um, try to summarize, James, and keep me honest here, that the question is around um, the line that we have to navigate between representing a more diverse audience, and James gave a great example of, with pride, a lot of clients kind of jumping on the bandwagon of, of doing more campaigns around pride, and, and how do we navigate the line between the cynicism of we're just doing it because now it's somehow uh, something that we see an advantage to versus doing the right thing, which is what we hope to do. Uh, that, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, I mean, for, for me, the reason that the work that I was leading was dealing with things like casting is because that's the stuff that no one's going to get patted on the back for, you know? I, the work that I was leading was trying to create normative change, was trying to represent more people and, and more stories in the way that I'd say the body of work that Netflix does the most successfully. Netflix just goes over here and tells this story and then over here and tells that one. And when you look at the whole body of work, I feel as though there is a fair representation of society. At least that's what I feel the, the attempt is. Um, and that for me is different uh, to causal work, work that champions a cause or maybe jumps on the bandwagon of a cause. And for, for me, the, the thing is always, you know, is, is it true? Is it real? Do the clients have a right to talk about it? And people sometimes say, oh, you know, it's chicken and egg. And I, I don't think it is chicken and egg. I think there needs to be a long legacy of a brand behaving differently in a space and helping people in a way that they are not asking to be rewarded for before we put it into a broadcast arena. Um, because the reality is Netflix exists. And so, and, and Pride exists, and Pride has given itself its own platform. Pride doesn't need to be amplified. We all know what Pride is, right? Um, and so, again, you know, it's almost... Advertising has, at its worst, um, created a slightly patronizing relationship um, between itself and causes, as though those causes need to be lifted up. And they don't need advertising, and people don't need advertising. Um, so, you know, I, I would agree because I feel as though your question is, is a bit pointed and, and I think that I would agree with your point in a good way. <laughs> okay, then I have one more for you, Elle. Um, actually, I have a couple more if we have two more minutes. Um, the first one is, are there things that, that, again, back to sort of the concrete tips thing, I don't know if you have any suggestions for um, things that people as they're, you know, younger in their careers are there specific things that they could do differently that would instantly raise their game? And those are probably things that are across, maybe they're across departments, across 
you know, agencies, maybe across the whole industry. But a lot of times, I think, when you first come into the business, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny because it's, it's kind of similar to the previous question in a way. Because I, I think that we all need younger people to be more brave. And when I say brave, I mean specifically to, to tell us and to challenge us when we're getting it wrong. And I think that what it takes people a while to find in their careers often is the bravery to challenge somebody above you um, and the um, humility to know that when you bring problems, it's really helpful to also bring solutions and, and to suggest and to suggest what you would do differently. Now, the lack of people doing that often comes from the fact that they don't feel like it's their place. Again, in, in our quite hierarchical cultures that the agencies can be. So I think raising, raising your game as, as a young person um, will come from challenging the status quo in agencies because also we otherwise, we risk being out of touch. I think agencies' biggest risk right now is being out of touch and not understanding like the needs of Gen Z, so like to go super, super young, the people who are coming in at entry level right now. And we need to understand um, how something is resonating, whether they have a pushback on this audience being characterized wrongly, whether they're worried about that script that they saw go into production that, you know, not in our agency, I'm sure, but could be the next um, Kendall Jenner ad, you know? So I, I think it's uh, being brave enough to manage up and to speak up. Beautiful, beautiful uh, conclusion to our conversation. So thank you. And um, are there any other questions? I don't want to um, cut anybody off, but if not, I just want to say thank you so much, Elle. And um, I took a whole bunch of notes because I think so many of the things you said have um, it, and not just impact and not just wisdom, but also a way that we can kind of act on them very quickly. So um, thank you for, for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jim. And thank you for the questions. And it's really lovely to remotely meet BBDO San Francisco. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll uh, be able to meet you in person one day soon. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Al.